Okay, please follow along with me as I read from God's word from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the sea coasts of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due, due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil? because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you? What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow? What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised the false prophets? God bless the reading of his word. Beatitudes are found in Matthew and in Luke, and the passage that Judy read for us is the Luke version, and I think helpful to see the two and to see the contrast. We're doing this series of messages now on the Sermon on the Mount, and last week we looked at the first four Beatitudes, and this morning we're going to look at the last four. And the Beatitudes, as I indicated last week, really are the, uh, the preamble, the, the uh, introduction to the sermon and focus on the character of those who are in the kingdom of God. The first four Beatitudes describe what we said last week are the internal transformation, that change of heart that happens when a person's life uh, is changed by their response to the gospel of the kingdom. It's from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Now the last four Beatitudes that we're going to look at this morning uh, show how this transformation uh, begins to work itself out into uh, the life and uh, it works itself out as we become part of 
that new creation that God has created. And in some sense, it might reflect what we call the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, uh, Paul wrote about the, the change that comes when the Spirit of God is at work within us and we yield our lives to the Spirit of God. And that's essentially what Jesus is talking about here as he talks about what comes out of that character that has been built by the response to the grace and the mercy of God. So we're going to look at the last four this morning. The first one, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. There's a difference between grace and mercy. Mercy deals with those who have been injured or hurt or in need and are dependent. Those who are merciful see the misery of that, those around them. The merciful are those who have eyes to see the human condition. For mercy to exist, there needs to be someone who is in need. Mercy always arises out of a consciousness that there is someone who hurts, someone who's broken, who's in pain and in misery. And a person cannot be merciful unless they are aware of another's hurt. They must be able to empathize with the one who is hurt with the gift of God's grace and mercy. Jesus is the model of the one who is merciful. Often it's said in the New Testament, it speaks of Jesus that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. He had mercy on them. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, which is a part of Luke's explanation of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, he says... Be merciful as your heavenly Father has been merciful to you. And so the whole sense of how mercy flows through us to others begins with the fact that we understand that God has been merciful to us. Those who are merciful sense that they are part of the human condition. Those who are merciful are those who do not separate themselves from their fellow human beings. There are no two categories in the Beatitudes, the mercy givers and the mercy receivers, or the mercy, those who are object of mercy. It's not an us and them situation. The very word mercy itself means to feel with, to suffer with, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of the other, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. 
Brotherly love will find any number of extenuation for the sins of others. Only for my own sin is there no apology whatsoever. Therefore, my sin is the worst. He who would serve his brother in the fellowship must sink all the way down to these depths of humility. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? Would I not be putting myself above him? Could I have hope for him? A person who's going to show mercy must recognize that they need God's mercy as well. Jesus tells the story in Matthew chapter 18 of the unjust steward. And the story goes like this. There was a man who was in debt to his boss and he pleaded for mercy. And his boss forgave the indebtedness and set him free from all of that indebtedness. A little bit later, the one who had been forgiven is owed a small amount of money by someone else. And he forces that person to pay. And at the end of the story, the words are, should he not have extended mercy? Those who are merciful understand, first of all, that they have received forgiveness and mercy from God. And that forgiveness, that mercy from God, is what enables them to understand how to be compassionate with others who need mercy and are in need. Then merciful people share their means. The merciful are not those who share what they have alone to. It involves the cost to be extended to others. Again, Jesus told a story that helps us to understand that. In Luke chapter 10, verse 30 and following, he tells the very familiar story of the Good Samaritan. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan, how uh, a man had fallen in a ditch and been accosted by robbers and uh, the, the publican and the, and the Samaritan walked by and ignored What happens is when the, good, when the Samaritan comes by, he notices, he understands the situation. But what's interesting is if you go through, once he understands the need of that person who has been accosted, there's a whole series of things that are costly, that are laid out. That's a major part of the story. First of all, he takes him out of the ditch and he bathes his wounds with oil and wine. Then he bandages him. Then he puts him on his donkey and takes the time to take him to the inn where he is cared for. Then he tells the innkeeper, if there's anything more that this is going to cost, Charge that to my account. 
Mercy is not cheap. Those who extend mercy recognize, first of all, that they've experienced God's unconditional love and mercy. And then they offer that. And that offering oftentimes takes both time and energy. As we understand more deeply how much God has forgiven us, how merciful He has been to us, it begins to generate within us a character of mercifulness to others. The second beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure of heart speaks of being transparent, sincere, authentic, not duplicitous. And it's interesting as you look at the text that it begins to talk about the fact that those who are pure in heart will see God. There's a promise in this beatitude. They shall see God. It looks as though this promise is future. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12 says, Now we see through a glass darkly, but when uh, we will see him face to face in the future. So are we speaking here of seeing God in the future? Is this kind of putting off uh, our, uh, when we see God face to face in eternity? When it says the pure of heart will see God? Or is it now? Scripture seems to suggest that no one can see, see God. In Exodus chapter 33 verse 20, we read, You cannot see my face, the Lord said to Israelites, for no one shall see me and live. So the Lord allowed Moses to see his shadow rather than to see his face. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, it says, God, the blessed, the only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. But then the verse goes on and says that the Son who is at the right hand of the Father has made Him known. Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen Him has seen the Father. There are also verses which seem to indicate that we can see God. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Romans 1, 18, verses 20. What may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly revealed. So when it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's focusing on the already and the not yet. We do not yet see God as we will. But we can see Him. I think of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's statement, Earth 
is crammed with heaven. And every common bush is alive with God. Yet only those who see it take off their shoes. It's possible that we see God, we miss seeing God because of our misperception. Why do we miss seeing God? The text says purity is the key. Those who are pure see God. Isaiah the prophet said, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden your face from him. Oftentimes it's our moral impurities that cloud our perception of God. Usually our inability to see God is not for lack of evidence on his part, but it's a matter of our conscience. Other things stand in the way. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the first thing they wanted to do was hide from God. They didn't want to see his face. And oftentimes that's the case in our situation. Not only sin, but a divided heart can keep us from seeing God. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called The Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And his thesis was that only as we will to know God will we see God. Scripture says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. James makes a very interesting statement in his epistle. Chapter 4, verse 8. He writes this. Wash your hands, you sinner. Verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. One of the type of reasons we don't see God is because our minds get clouded with other things. We have too many things on our mind and we don't focus specifically on God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's interesting that in the Bible, the New Testament, it's not the externally pious who are pure of heart. Jesus challenged the Pharisees in verse in Matthew 23, he talks about, Woe, you blind guides, you blind fools, blind Pharisees. And in the Gospel of John, there's a progressive focus on the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes would not respond to Jesus. And it culminates in chapter 9 where he heals the man who was blind. And essentially the focus is, wait a minute, Pharisees and the scribes are the ones who are blind. David in his prayer in Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 73, Surely the Lord is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then on down verse 25 and 26, it says, Who have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The whole point of being single-minded, pure of heart, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Not only tomorrow, but today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Every war has its beginning in the heart and in the mind of a person. The primary battle is with inner enemies. Until a person has conquered themselves, and that which will conquer within themselves that which causes war, they contribute consciously or unconsciously to the warfare in the world. Whoever would be a peacemaker must begin within their home, but must also begin within their own heart. Again, in James chapter 4, we read James's focus on what causes wars. He writes these words. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, and you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight, and you do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Peace begins when we make peace with God. Man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement, says C.S. Lewis. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. Blessed are the peacemakers. It begins when we have made our peace with God by acknowledging the whole process that we've looked at in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. These are the processes that bring us to the point where we can be peacemakers. And it's interesting that peacemaking is not passive. It's interesting that we sometimes call those who refuse to join the military a, a pacifist. Peacemaking is not pacifism. Peacemaking is proactive. There are peace doers, peace builders, peace creators, peacemakers. Those are the ones who are blessed. The verses in scripture that speak of peace, speak of it in an active sense. Think of Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of, the, of peace through the bond of Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongues from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. 
The whole sense is that there's an active involvement, an energy that is given to the idea of being a peacemaker. I've reflected a lot these few last few months on what the role of a Christian ought to be in our society these days with the polarization that is, is around us. And more and more I'm convinced that what God is calling his people to be is based upon who we are. We are transformed by his spirit to become peacemakers. And our role in the world today is all that we can do to bring about reconciliation, to bring about peace between warring parties. What that means in terms of concrete kind of things, I think we need to explore. But if the scriptures are clear that when we become believers, we are transformed into those who seek peace and give energy toward bringing about peace, if that's the case, then I think our agendas are clear. Fourth, fourth beatitude we will look at this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now we can be persecuted for a lot of crazy stuff. We can be stupid and be persecuted because we're stupid. Uh, we can be persecuted because of things that are not really related to righteousness. The blessing that is promised in this text is one that comes because of righteousness. And I think this kind of falls into line with the peacemakers. Uh, I mentioned some weeks ago the, the connection between peace and justice. Righteousness being justice. And we are, we are made uh, peacemakers as we work toward bringing about justice. And my sense is that often it's those who work for justice that end up being persecuted. When you think of Jesus and the persecution that he brought about, much of it was because he was breaking down the barriers uh, between people who had, uh, had put down uh, the, the poor or the, the ones who were less in society. And so Jesus is making it quite clear that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Their own righteousness, uh, which shines the light into the dark world, but also standing up for justice and righteousness on the part of others. When we do that, there is a promise of persecution. And we know throughout history, Christians have experienced persecution. Back in 2020, when Mary and I were uh, stuck in Tunisia because of COVID, our daughter wanted to keep us busy. So she lined up a tour with a PhD historian who uh, was a tour guide and took us to all of the Christian sites in Carthage and the, the, the region. And one of the interesting things that we did was to go to the plaza where Perpetua, uh, one of the early martyrs, was challenged to uh, make a sacrifice to the Roman emperor and refused to do that and then was imprisoned and then we went uh, about a mile from that plaza to a, the ruins of one of the, the large uh, Colosseums, uh, Roman Colosseums, where she was taken along with her, her servant Felicity 
and the two of them were martyred. And so we stood basically where she would have died. Uh, initially, they turned the bulls on her, and uh, she got gored by a bull and uh, didn't die. And so they brought a gladiator out with a sword, and he tried several times, and he missed, and he had a terrible time. So finally, according to the legend, she took the sword and stuck it in herself and, and died because she refused. And there was an ongoing debate between her plea on the part of her father that she would turn against Christianity and sacrifice to the emperor. She had a child at the time. She gave the child to her father. And the father would lift up the child and say to her, oh, for the sake of your father and for the sake of this child, will you turn against Christianity? And she would not. We know throughout history, Christians have experienced persecution. Paul writes in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, verses 18 through 21, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So absence of persecution means either that this promise that Jesus gave is invalid, or we are not walking in the path of godliness and righteousness faithfully enough to cause persecution. The Indian saint, Siddhar Singh, said, in this world in which all godly prophets and apostles, even the Lord himself, had to suffer, if one wishes to escape suffering, he will have to deny the truth and turn away his face from God and make friends with the world. John chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 this is the verdict light has come into the world but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil everyone who does not who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds might be exposed as brilliant light is painful to the eyes so the light of God's holiness is painful to a sinner who seeks to hide from it. The believer placed in the world as light brings pain to the world. There can be no response to that light but rejection, persecution, bitterness, and hatred. There's no such thing as a peaceful coexistence between light and darkness. It's interesting that in the text that we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 5, where it speaks of the fact that we will have persecution, it talks about three different forms of persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you. There's the idea of insult or ridicule, which is a mild form, but it is a form of persecution. Then it says, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of my sake. Slander, saying falsehoods, saying all kinds of evil, untruths. And then finally, uh, 
the idea that we are uh, persecuted. It's quite clear that God's power is released through persecution. We hear in 1 Corinthians that the power of God was made manifest through the cross. The cross is that power. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The true Christian life is like sandalwood, which imparts its fragrance to the axe, which cuts it without doing it any harm. So what is that? Without your wounds, where would your power be that send your low voice trembling into the hearts of men? The very angels of God in heaven cannot persuade the wretched and wandering children of earth as can one human being broken on the wheel of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldier will do. One of my favorite authors is Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India, single lady who ended up dying there because of uh, sickness. But she's written a lot. And uh, one of the things she's written is, relates to this idea of suffering. She writes, have you no scars? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear you sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail you bright ascending star. Have you no scar? Have you no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer, spent, leaned me against the tree to die, and rent the heaven's beast that compassed me. I swooned. Have you no wounds? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, pierced are the feet that follow me. But yours are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Some would say, well, in order for me to receive God's mercy, I have to be merciful. That's not the way it goes. Scripture would not support that. It's the other way around. Be merciful as your Heavenly Father has been merciful to you. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive those who have sinned against you as you have received God's mercy. As the steward who was forgiven much ought to be merciful and forgive. Blessed are the pure in heart. Single-minded, authentic, pure, focus clearly on the person of our Lord. And when we set aside all of the distractions and look and seek Him with all our heart, we will find Him. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God.
Heavenly Father, as we wrap up our thoughts on the eight Beatitudes, we acknowledge that it takes the work of an almighty, merciful, loving God invading our lives, softening our hearts, transforming our wills, so that out of the innermost beings of our lives come these kinds of characteristics. Father, we pray that you would conform us to your will, conform us to be more and more Christ-like in our lives by your spirit. We acknowledge this morning, Father, we can't do this on our own. We acknowledge that this is only possible because you work with us. So we commit ourselves to follow you more closely, put ourselves to love you more deeply, and to trust you more fully, put ourselves into your hands, and live according to your agenda. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.